0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: To start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with John Waite. He's the winner of the third series of The Great British Bake Off. While the world of reality television is often cruel and scandalous, Waite says the spirit of competition on The Great British Bake Off was nothing short of friendly.
1: We got on so well that the production company had to ask us to stop helping each other during the technical challenge. I think that's the kind of, you know, British friendliness that we we tried to help each other. We weren't very competitive. Not until the end anyway.
0: Also coming up, Alexi News attempts to make Joel Robuchon's mashed potatoes, and we cook an Indian staple of simmered lentils with spice-infused hot butter. But first, we're chatting with Max Falkowitz. He's a food and travel writer, as well as being obsessed with Facebook culinary groups. Max, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, we're talking about strange culinary (laughs) Facebook groups. There's a bunch of Facebook groups in niche culinary areas. How did you find out about this? Uh, why did you join some of these groups and, and what are they talking about?
3: So it's, I, I think that the important thing to think about the internet and and niche communities is they've always been there. There have always been nerds with particular interests that are not served by mainstream media who are looking for a way to talk with each other and kind of create their own forms of cultural production. Uh a friend of mine who is a member of the Cooking with Clay Facebook group founded by Steve Sando the uh the founder of Rancho Gordo was sharing some posts with me about how enthusiastic members were about sharing where their pottery was from and the the kind of raw enthusiasm that was there was 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 so refreshing and inspiring and just kind of delightful. And then what Facebook is very good at is recommending additional groups for you to join once you join anything. And so really, you can use that Facebook search bar to explore whatever interest you have just by typing things
0: in and seeing where the rabbit hole leads you. So let's let's go through some of these specifically. Uh, the rude, rebellious canners. We're talking about walking on the wild side of home canning.
3: So these are these are some of my favorite people on the internet because there are many home canning groups out there with people asking for general canning advice and sharing somewhat more complicated recipes. The rude but rebellious canners group emerged because a couple of people were tired of posting their canned recipes and commenters leaving judgmental notes about how they were going to poison their families with botulism, that these are people who've been canning for generations. They're doing things exactly the way their, their parents taught them. So they wanted to create a safe space for them to talk about canning food and the acts of putting up food in a way that that was genuine to them without having to deal with the scolds of the more mainstream canning community. And something that's really interesting to me about these groups is you never see sharing Articles or uh, links from around the web pertaining to their interest. It's always uh, it's always pure user generated content, and to me that says something really powerful about how these people want to do something their own way because their needs aren't being met by other sources.
0: Let's move on to aspects with threatening auras, which I think has got to be the the best named Facebook group of all time. You you've been on that site. Uh, what's the concept here? I think i I haven't done the the exact chronology here, but I believe aspects with
3: threatening auras is. One of the offshoots of the vastly more popular "Show Me Your Aspics" group, <laughs> which is a more earnest uh, Jello and Savory Aspic appreciation forum, which now has something like twenty thousand members. I think the Guardian just did a feature on them, um, and that's that's one where you see people sharing all types of Jellos and Jellies and spanking videos are kind of a norm, where people take slow motion videos of spanking their Jello. But this is the internet, and the internet is all about niche specialties and a lot of the internet is about gross out humor and i think what what's what's so great about jello mold and aspects as a concept is that they they provide this kind of uncanny valley experience for food where it's definitely recognizable as as something that we eat but it also feels very other in that hyper processed sort of 1950s culinary revolution or nadir depending on how you want to look at it and then you have all of these genuinely earnest people creating things like fetuses in a womb and sharing them earnestly is like oh look at this thing that i made for my gender reveal party without any sense (laughs) of how horrible or upsetting they are to people and so the, the, to, to have, a, have a place of like-minded people who a understand the the, 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 the historical context around um, around jello and aspect-based foods B who delight in seeing these formats um, transgressed and it's a group of, of really of really funny people at the border of titillating and slightly upsetting.
0: So I mean the digital world is really good. At going back to old food ways and recipes and techniques, and bringing back some of the best things from the past using a technology that's of the future, right?
3: And, and yeah, and and then combining them with uh, with new kinds of technology. For instance, in Thailand a few years ago, the rolled ice cream where they where they had that ice cream base right. on the nitrogen cold anti-griddle and then you'd create it into to a sheet and roll it up like that was a the presence of those shops everywhere in the u.s now is a direct consequence of communities on facebook and youtube and other social platforms sharing videos of that from thailand at the source so this isn't just preserving old traditions but it's also creating brand new ones and it's having real effects in in the real world
0: Max, uh, thank you so much for being a Milk Street.
3: Pleasure, pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much.
0: That was food and travel writer Max Falkowitz. His article for Taste is called The Internet Safe Space for Extreme Canning. Right now, Sarah Moult and I are ready to solve your culinary mystery. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101.
4: All right, Chris, before we get started here, I want to know what are your favorite wines?
0: Oh, that's a small question. I'm absolutely fixated, and this sounds really annoying, I'm sorry, on Sicilian wines. And let me tell you why. They're inexpensive, usually under 20 bucks a bottle, which is great, and they're lighter, and they're very good with food. I just think a big wine, unless you have beef bourguignon or something,
4: yeah, they just take over.
0: I don't eat really heavy foods too much anymore, so they don't really go with it too well. Yeah. What, what do you like?
4: Well, I'm very boring. Red Bordeaux's and white Burgundies. But somebody else has to pay, although I love Spanish wines.
0: Albarino or something?
4: Well, no, and the reds, the Riojas. Oh. And also there's some great Portuguese wines. You know, I've been trying to find more of those because great value, just like you said about Sicily.
0: Well, in 30 years, all the wine-growing regions will move northward by 500 miles, so we'll have whole <laughs> new wines. We will. English wines will be uh, all the rage. Yeah. Okay,
4: open up the phone lines. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi,
5: Sarah and Chris. This is Lori calling from Denver.
4: Lovely town. Love Denver. How can we help you today?
5: So a bit of an odd question, but, you know, I'm trying to be as resourceful as possible and leave as little imprint out there as possible. So just trying to be creative with my cooking and came up with this debate with my husband on banana peels. Oh. Is there (laughs) anything besides compost? that I could utilize banana peels, maybe, I don't know, soaking in alcohol.
4: Oh, well, that's an interesting thought, so I applaud you. But I've been thinking a lot about what to do with leftover things like carrot tops and stuff you throw away anyway, but banana peels is sort of interesting. I know that in Southeast Asia and India, they will soften the peels. I mean, what you do is you take off the peels, you scrape off the fibers or any white stuff on the inside, And then you chop it up, and then you need to soften it. You can either saute it or steam it or boil it or stew it. You can put it in chutneys. You can put it in curries. I was online the other day, and I saw something ready, fasten your seatbelt, for banana bacon. Oh,
0: no. (laughs) No, I'm I'm not kidding. This is so depressing. I saw a wonderful Mm. picture.
4: They looked absolutely yummy. So you take these banana peels. You scrape off the white part. You marinate them in something like soy sauce, smoked paprika, because that gives you the smokiness, right? For, you know, like a half an hour or up to two hours. And then you saute them until they're crispy. This
0: sounds like the (laughs) worst bacon. I
4: think it sounds yummy. What is
0: it? Okay. Why do people want to mess with bacon? First of all, I applaud Lori, as you did. I think it's great. Like the sustainable kitchen concept, I really believe in that. But there is a bridge too far here. Like mango I, chutney, I mean, the equivalent of mango chutney, but with banana peel in it. I kind of get that. That might work. I just think bacon is, I mean...
4: Well, we just called smoky banana peel. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I think used in a chutney-like setting, a jam chutney. I, that, or, I, or a that Or in a curry. Or in a curry. I get it because it's just one part of the whole thing, but on its own... And calling it bacon. All right, all right. So well, you, if I went to your house for breakfast and you made me... You'd be so excited. Bacon well, but made I'm not, out of I'm, banana this peel? This is not
4: empirical evidence. Well, not let's
0: ask Lori. Have you tried different things?
5: No. I mean, honestly, I've been a bit at a loss of what, but I mean, I love making homemade chutney. So that right there sounds the most appealing. And yeah. maybe bacon isn't the right word, but maybe banana peel peeled jerky instead. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I have been in a bacon pulled up on my
4: computer right now, so I have to try that.
0: Oh, yeah, please do. You,
6: you do have to okay. try it.
4: Lori, save me. Come back and no. tell us if you did it or not. And <laughs> we're if it's call, terrible, I'll throw in the towel. We're going to
0: call Lori back. Okay. You have to do this, and we'll call back and see what it was like. It would be a stunning culinary reversal. Right. If this turned out to be great bacon.
4: Yeah. Okay. Or a great yummy thing all by itself. More to come. Certainly appreciate you, too. Okay, thanks thanks for calling. Yeah. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.
5: Bye-bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: This is Lily.
0: Hi, Lily. Where are you calling from?
5: I'm calling from Berkeley, California.
0: Oh, lucky you. Yes. You live right around the corner from Chez Panisse or something like that?
5: Yeah, not too far away.
0: I don't know how I knew that, but I did. Okay, how <laughs> how can we help you?
5: My question has to do with cilantro, which is an herb that shows up in a lot of recipes, particularly, obviously, Mexican and Thai, and it's something that I can't eat. So I'm wondering if you have some suggestions about how to cook around that.
0: Well, the obvious replacement's parsley. That's what everyone will tell you. But, of course, parsley doesn't taste anything like cilantro. I would suggest you try some other fresh herbs like marjoram or something like that and just find an herb you like, and then you can mix it with parsley if you like. I mean, that's what I would do because I think trying Ah. to imitate cilantro is impossible. But parsley is a base, and then add some other herb you particularly like. It's just a go-to mixture because, you know, parsley's cheap and you need a little bit of the other herb. That's what I would do. Or just use parsley because...
4: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. yeah
0: cilantro cilantro. Right. And now, Sarah, my co-host, is looking at me...
4: No, I just... Well, I don't disagree, but you mentioned <laughs> Mexican and Thai. The other two fresh herbs that are used sometimes in conjunction with cilantro are mint and basil. Mm-hmm. Although they're mm-hmm. more similar in flavor than either one of them are to cilantro, meaning to each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they could easily replace each other. But the fact of the matter is, if cilantro worked in a Thai recipe, so would mint or basil. It's a totally different flavor. There's no way you're going to replicate cilantro. You shouldn't even try. You probably hate it because it tastes like soap. Right. So I would go with one of the other two in Thai recipes. And I would agree with Chris about Mexican... You know, using parsley as a base, but then adding an herb like fresh oregano. Or like oregano, which right. is often used in Mexican cooking. Sure. So look to the other fresh herbs that are used right. in the cuisine when you're trying to replace a third place that cilantro right. is used a lot is in Middle Eastern. And there I think I would go with just straight mm-hmm. parsley. What do you think, Chris? Or maybe Del. Straight parsley. I think in
0: Middle Eastern cooking I would just use parsley, but I might add some other spice to it cumin? Uh, Coriander, for example, like some whole coriander you toast for a couple minutes and then grind. You know, parsley, Mm -hmm. like in tabbouleh, Mm -hmm. parsley is used used in everything as well. Well, again, mint would work there too.
4: Mint yeah, mint Mint, would work in Middle Eastern as well, I think. Mint's
0: always, and it's used a lot also in uh, Mexican cooking too. So yeah, yeah, those are good suggestions. We don't disagree.
4: All right. right. Oh my gosh.
5: And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that it's actually a slightly different mixture depending on where in the world you're cooking. Sure. So with Mexican food it sounds like parsley and oregano is yes. kind of maybe a nice idea. Whereas if it's Thai, you might want to use mint or basil. Correct. Yeah. And mix it up also, I suppose, and see what, you know, how that works out. Yes. So but there's always parsley. As you said, it's growing out back. So <laughs> okay. um, good. Thank you. That was really, really helpful. I really appreciate it. Sure. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Lily.
4: Take care.
0: Bye bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're going behind the scenes of The Great British Bake Off with Series 3 winner John Waite. That and more after the break. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Great British Bake Off winner John Waite. His new book is called A Flash in the Pan. John, welcome to Milk Street.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. Thank
1: you.
0: Um, I love your book because it's not overly enthusiastic or uh, paints the salad days as being uh, so wonderful, you, you write. As a child, I loathed the idea and practice of eating together. It was a time of forced family, which I felt was more symbolic than meaningful. So, so many people write about their their joyful experiences around the table. You take a, a a little darker, more interesting point of view. Could you just elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, as a child, I knew, you know, I was on the on the verge of coming out as gay, and I always knew that. Eating together with my family was a difficult thing because it was a symbol of, of a, a, a community that really I didn't see would continue to exist for my life because I always thought that as a gay man, I would grow up very alone. Mm. And so dinner times as a family were just sort of shrouded with that awful premonition that I'd end up on my own like a hermit. And so it was just a time that I really, really felt uncomfortable for, for me was food, was dinner time.
0: So you then, at some point, I gather, reconnected around the dinner table, in other words, the dinner table now has become again a happy place for you
1: it has it really has I mean, I met my partner eleven years ago, and the thing that he loved the most about me on our first date was the amount of food I put away. We were in this in this <laughs> bar, and we'd I'd already we already had dinner separately we We weren't meant to be eating, but we went to a bar in Manchester, and I ordered a platter of hummus and and dried, cured meats, and he didn't have anything to eat, but I ate enough for about 20 people. (laughs) And uh, he was very impressed by that, because northern people, people from the north of England, that is, uh, they like the food, um, and the sloppier the better. So, yeah, it was kind of around a dinner table, a very impromptu dinner table, that I realized that I didn't have to be alone. So I came back to food. Well, food brought me back to uh, feeling connected again.
0: You mentioned people in the north of England like their food. The sloppier, the better. Uh, do, do, do different people in different regions have a different point of view about eating and food?
1: I guess, yeah. I mean, I think in the south, people are a little bit more. They don't really have gravy on the chips, let's say. Whereas in the north, <laughs> we like a lot of gravy and mushy peas, and we eat it with cheap, crap white bread that we've buttered <laughs> very thickly. You know, the, the, there's a Danish, or I think it's a Scandinavian word, tradsmoor, and it means it literally translates the, the the grooves that your teeth leave in in butter that's so th- thickly smeared on bread. That's a great we can easily we can, equate, we can equate with that. Yeah, it's such a beautiful word. And was Northerns we like to mm. uh, we like to have our white bread buttered and to dip into our gravy.
0: Like, well, maybe I'm maybe I have ancestors from the north of England. I do too. You must. I <laughs> must. Um, how did you get from a ten-year-old who felt lonely at the dinner table? to the point where you ended up on the Great British Bake Off in 2012? What what was the culinary arc there?
1: I guess food, even though it was a great uh, lever between, you know, it drove a lever in, in my emotional state of mind. It made me feel quite lonely as a child. I think I latched onto it because it was the only identity I had, I guess, or the only connection I had with my mum. Because when mum and dad divorced, she and I used to bake all the time. And from from that moment, food was a very therapeutic, medicinal thing for me, you know, it really solved uh, a lot of my darkest bouts of depression, it really helped to lift me out of it, because I find that baking, particularly over over cookery, not exclusively, but particularly for me, is, um, is very constructive, it allows you to turn a very destructive uh, energy into something constructive, you know, Winston Churchill used to paint and build walls for his depression, and I, Uh, not that I want to compare myself in any way to Winston, because I'll never achieve anything as great as he did. But you know, the the principle of creativity when it's trying to get out of a bout of depression is a very important thing. And also food is a social thing. If you make a batch of brownies, you really shouldn't eat them all yourself, you should get out there and share them with your friends. And so yeah, so I kind of latched onto food to get me out of that uh, darkness, even though it was it's what made the darkness very obvious for me. That loneliness that I thought I would encounter—it actually was my um, life raft out of that loneliness.
0: So you go on. Uh, you ended up on the Great British Bake Off. You win, and and you you talk a lot about this in your book. You say the person you were before the show is the best version of you. I thought that was a really interesting comment.
1: Yeah, I mean, the show, the show, there was no aftercare from the Bake Off. Um, you know, I was a 23-year-old lad who was, until then, really had grown up on a farm, went to university, but hadn't really seen the world. And all of a sudden, I was getting a six-figure book deal and, and crazy offers. And nobody from the show said, are you okay with this? Do you know what to do? Do you need any advice? Do you need counselling? And so that's why I wrote those words, because, you know, I kind of forgot who I was after Bake Off. Being presented with TV opportunities and money and, and freebies and holidays, it, it goes to your head as a 23-year-old lad. Luckily, you know, as, as I said, I come from a farming family, and my mother would never, ever let me get completely lost and get, let my head get too far in the clouds. She, she clamped and stapled and nailed my feet to the ground, and I'm so grateful for that.
0: So what, just I've never been on a show like that, could you just describe what actually what it's like from your perspective from day one coming on to that show in 2012? What was the experience like behind the scenes?
1: It was busy. I mean, it was very long winded. We'd get there at about seven o'clock in the morning um, to, to the studio. Well, it wasn't a studio. It was a tent in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we would get to the to the tent and we were all really excited it was a it was a really fun process um a lot of waiting around you know you'd wait for the presenters you'd wait for the production team to be ready we weren't allowed our phones while we were filming which is obviously you'd expect that but there was a great deal of of friendliness um behind the scenes between the bakers we got on so well that the production company had to ask us to stop helping each other during the technical challenge mm. because we were trying to get each other i think that's the kind of you know uh, British friendliness that we we tried to tried to help each other. We weren't very competitive. Not until the end, anyway. Hmm. So I really enjoyed it. It was pretty much, it was after Bake Off that I found it to be a bit of a struggle.
0: Uh, let's talk about recipes. Uh, Eaton Mess is a famous English dessert, uh, not yeah. known very well over here. W- why has Eaton Mess survived? What is it about it that's particularly loved by the English? And why don't you describe describe it first, if you would.
1: So Eton Mess is a mixture of uh, broken up meringue, uh, whipped cream, and then usually a little bit of sugar maybe, maybe icing sugar or confectioner sugar, as you guys call it, and uh, some fruit like raspberries or berries. And I think the reason it's survived here is because it's so slapdash. You know, our desserts are pretty hodgepodge. We've got trifle, we've got bread and butter pudding. We've got um, treacle tart, which uses leftover breadcrumbs. Our desserts would probably make a French person scoff, (laughs) but they survive for us because they're so simple. Our food, again, is based on good ingredients prepared with love and perhaps a fairly slapdash uh, nature.
0: I like that term, slapdash, maybe. Has anyone ever written written the slapdash cookbook? That's... Probably a pretty good you No, know, but I
1: might do it. There you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I might call it the slapdash cookbook for the lazy. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, chocolate olive oil mousse made with mayonnaise. Yeah.
1: Don't start <laughs> now.
0: I, well, I, look, I, man, you, it's in your book, so I, you, it's fair game.
1: <laughs> no, olive oil, olive oil um, is great in with chocolate because you get that peppery bitterness from olive oil. And um, the mayonnaise is there because it offers a kind of egginess without, and, and an eggy savouriness. So you've got the savouriness of mayonnaise along with the qualities that egg would bring the mousse. And it, it works so, so well. Of course, you've still got the aeration from the from the egg whites. Right. Um, but the mayonnaise makes it kind of... Slimy would be an off-putting word, but it gives it that sort of coat-tonguing fabulousness, shall we say, that you want to get from a mousse. It makes it linger... Linger on the palate to be a bit wanky.
0: (laughs) So you teach cooking. Have you figured out why some people are able to learn how to cook fairly readily and others aren't? Is it fear? Is it something else?
1: I think it's just the ability to process instruction. I find cookery is like learning how to tie your shoelace. It's a very difficult thing to... If you were to try and explain on a piece of paper how to tie someone's shoelace... um, it's quite a difficult thing and I I find that as a food writer I've got to try and be get the information across in the most basic way while maintaining a certain integrity that the food deserves and so I find that cookery lessons are a great way because food is such a visual thing and I can also talk to my students about when you brown butter for example it's not just about how the butter looks or how it smells but it's also about how it sounds you know as you're evaporating the moisture from the butter it's like the pitter-patter of rainfall on a cold tin roof, but then all of a sudden the rain just stops, and that's when you'll get the smell of hazelnuts. And for people to learn that in my little kitchen, it's such an intimate thing, and I hope that people, when they see it happening, when they hear it happening, when they smell it, will always know what to look for and what to listen for and what to sniff out for.
0: You mentioned something really interesting, which I believe in too, which is the sound of food cooking.
1: Could we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So for example when you when you're cooking onions when you're frying onions as you put them in the pan with a bit of salt they'll sound like almost like a a slightly wet bubble and that's when you know the heat's the heat's good you've got the heat right but as that sound becomes more of a dry crackly sound which you know if you close your eyes it threatens to burn then you know that the pan's too hot and you've got to turn the pan down but no the sound of food is important like when you're baking a cake for example when it's just about set, the cake's just about baked, it'll sing very, very delicately to you. It's like a little, like a. And when you get that, you know that it's just about ready.
0: Do, do that one more time. I, I, that's new to me. I love this.
1: It's like a. a... <laughs>
0: that's good. It's
1: honestly, you should try it when you bake a cake next. Okay. When the timer goes off, just, just raise the cake to your ear. Not too close. You don't want to leave without your earlobes. <laughs> but raise it to your ear, and it will sing to you, and it will say, "I'm ready," you know. And and obviously, it'll smell ready, and you could skewer test it and drive huh. a cocktail stick in there. But listen to it, and it sounds stupid. It sounds pretentious, but it's true. It will sing to you.
0: When the cake sings, there's another t- title for it. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll write that book. Um, so I'm I've now hired you uh, to st- with an unlimited budget. To start a new television cooking show, do you have do you have a show in mind?
1: I do. That's so funny. I wanted I wanted to do something about like the Kitchen Island, for example. Is is such a great title? Or vote him off the Kitchen Island, or kicked off the Kitchen Island. And it would be great to have a cookery show that's based on an island somewhere, a really remote island, and people have to forage for what they've got on the island. Um, Obviously, there'd be a bit of, you know, the production company would need to plant a few yams here and there, maybe. Uh, But they have to forage this island to try and create meals for the judges Mm. who then vote on who's the best meal is. And then if they don't make it, they're kicked off the island and they have to drown in the shark-infested waters or at least get a life raft home. Uh, (laughs) But I've thought about it. I I like
0: the fact there's a little darkness left in you. That's good. I like that. That's good.
1: Oh, listen, (laughs) where there should be a soul, there's darkness in me. Believe me. (laughs) So... I uh but no I'm glad that I've committed it now to a podcast cuz if it happens I can I can make it happen now.
6: So
0: you sound like things for you started off when you were 10 uh, you know life was pretty dark uh, you, you weren't looking towards a very happy future but it seems like you have through thick and thin sort of got to a place you didn't think you'd get to right?
1: Yeah, no, on my 30th birthday this year, I was very emotional because I honestly thought that I would have killed myself by now. I mean, um, the reason I went, I, don't know, I say it with such nonchalance, because it's just a fact of my life. But Audre Lorde once wrote that self-care is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation. Mm. And I think that's so true. You've got to look after yourself. As a depressive, I believe in Trying your best to get out of the darkness. Sometimes it's impossible, and will be tied, Anybody else ever tells you that? You know, you've got to, you've got to say that to yourself. But you have to, you have to try. You know, it's about putting things into perspective. We are merely ghosts in our own houses. We're not going to be here forever. And I think it's important to remember that.
0: John, it's been uh, just a great pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you.
1: It's been an honor to be with you.
0: That was John Waite, he's a baker and also owns a cooking school in Lancashire, England. His new book is called, A Flash in the Pan, Simple Speedy Stovetop Recipes. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Dal Tarka. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you recently got back from Mumbai. Mm -hmm. Um, You were tracking down butter chicken, vindaloo, some of the usual suspects. Yep. But you came across Dal Tarka, which turned out to be one of the highlights of your trip. What is Dal Tarka?
8: Well, first of all, something I was not expecting to appreciate or be impressed by, but kind of blew me away. At its core, this is Indian comfort food. It's, it's a yellow lentils that are cooked down to an almost porridge consistency. And then they're combined with a kind of a seasoning condiment that has ginger and tomatoes and whole spices and, and garlic and onion. And you kind of stir that in at the very end. And the result is this really layered, textured dish with lots of flavor and lots of crunch and lots of tomatoes. And it's really an incredible package.
0: So the tarka, which is a a flavored oil, Could you just explain that? Because that's something that's used across Indian cooking,
8: right? It is, it is. And, And so let me back us up because the dal is the yellow lentils, which I said are cooked down to a porridge, and then the tarka is what you season those lentils with because on their own, the lentils don't have a whole lot of flavor. Tarka is built, and so you build it by first starting with your fat, in this case, ghee or clarified butter. Then they add whole spices, and the whole spices are simmered so that they retain their texture but and their crunch, but the flavor comes out. Then you add uh, kind of wet seasonings, as they call them, you know, the onions, the ginger, the garlic, the fresh chilies, things like that. Then you add your ground spices, which you wouldn't have wanted to add earlier because those would burn. And then finally, you kind of finish it off with any, any final ingredients, in this case, tomatoes.
0: And may I ask where you found this? Was it a roadside food cart or something? It was
8: roadside, but it was not a food cart. I I was wandering, as I am wont to do, and I came across a temple where uh, teenage monks were washing the white marble statues with milk, of course. Of course. And they invited me out back to their canteen, and in typical canteen fashion, you know, you get a a stainless steel tray and they plop this mush on your tray, (laughs) and, you know, I wasn't expecting much. But when I dug in, like I say, it was such a a layering of contrasting flavors and textures and sweet and creamy and rich and and pops of spice and heat. It really, really impressed me.
0: Yeah, I just have to say, the reason that travel is so important is what you don't expect, right? You weren't expecting this and you end up with this really easy, great recipe, which takes, what, 10 minutes to make the tarka? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, J.M., thank you. Dal Tarka, which is not just a great recipe for yellow lentils with spices, but it's a way of adding flavor to almost any dish. Thank you.
8: Thank you. You can get this recipe for Dal Tarka at MilkStreetRadio.com.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Alex I News about his pursuit to replicate Joel Rubichon's famous mashed potatoes. We'll be right back. <music> this is Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of uh, phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls.
3: and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: Welcome to Milk Street, who's calling?
2: Hello, this is Charles Reed from Southerton, Pennsylvania. How are you? I'm doing very well. I have a question about cream sauces. Okay. My question is about adding wine to cream-based sauces to ensure that the sauce doesn't break. I've had one or two bad experiences that I'm attributing to either not reducing or maybe adding it at the wrong time. And I wanted to get some advice before I try to pull off a good cream sauce for a big dinner party.
0: Well, regardless of cream sauce, we recommend that you reduce wine separately in a saucepan at a sort of barely bubble, like 180 degrees, 175 mm-hmm. degrees, let it reduce down, might take half an hour, reduce it by 70, 80%. So you have a concentrated wine, mm. which does two things. You get better flavor than just adding wine directly because it's more concentrated. Yes. And secondly, you will not get the curdling. That'll also solve that problem. The other thing is the heavier, that is, the fattier the dairy, the less likely it's going to denature and turn and bind together and curdle. So half and half, for example, is more likely to denature and curdle than heavy cream. That's another thing to consider. But the key of the wine is, even with a stew, without dairy, you're going to get a much fresher flavor, and it's a much better way of uh, dealing with wine. We find when you cook meat and wine, it just it dries just, out it the just, meat. It's
4: just thin and, yeah. and vinegary almost. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of nasty. I wanted to ask a question, Charles. How do you make your cream sauce? Are you thickening it at all, or is it just cream and milk?
2: Typically, uh, I'll give you the example of a chorizo cream sauce. that I would like to add some albarino. I would do that reduction. But other ingredients, obviously the cream, a little bit of chorizo sausage. At the end, a small amount of finely grated Parmesan or a manchego. So typically, that cheese would give you a little bit of thickening, but I'm not looking to add a roux in this case. I'm not looking to add... Corn starch or anything like that but you
4: did have cream and you also had another dairy well, what other kind of dairy in there or just cream
2: cream and a little bit of a grated hard cheese at the at very the end. end
4: okay um because cream you can actually boil and it will thicken but so probably you're right it was the acid added at the wrong time and not reduced boy that sounds yummy though well Charizzo there is always um, cream hmm.
0: there is a recipe i just picked up I was in Bologna in September. Just a quick idea for you. Reduce cream down for about 10 minutes at a very low simmer and then put a whole ton of grated Parmesan whisked into it. And you can put a little bit of lemon juice in if you like. And that's a Parmesan cream sauce, which they use on everything like lasagnas, et cetera. It's just phenomenal. Sounds yummy. Uh, And it doesn't break and it's 10 minutes.
2: Right. That sounds exquisite. And that would even be great for people here with celiac, et cetera. Perfect. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yes.
4: The reason I asked you about thickening is because if you had thickened it, it would be more stable also, you know, like with a roux. But mm. I applaud you for not thickening it because, you know, just reduced heavy <laughs> cream is so much tastier than thickened with a roux. Charles, thank you for calling. Yes. Have a good afternoon. Yes, yeah, okay. You, take you care too.
0: This is most J Radio. If you have a cooking question, Sarah and I may have an answer. Please give us a call. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from
5: Cleveland, Ohio.
4: Okay. And how can we help you today?
5: Well, firstly, I'm so excited to be talking to you guys. Thanks for taking the call. I am a new mother, and we, uh, my husband and I are really trying to integrate adult food into his diet. We want to make sure that he has a wonderful palate of, of spices, and we don't want him to just be eating chicken fingers and fries and things like that. I'm an avid cook. And we are finding that, uh, you know, he probably will eat spaghetti bolognese, and that's pretty much it. So I'm finding that I'm making dinner for myself and my husband and a dinner for my son, Henry. And I know that you both have children. I'm wondering how you approach that. And uh, we're kind of in that phase where we're going from puree to solids. Is there any tips and tricks you can give a new mother?
4: <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations. Secondly, I love the name Henry. Thirdly, I guarantee you Chris and I are going to disagree, so I'm going to go first here. I think what you can do is expose them to different things. What I did with my kids is made sure they had choices. Now, I don't mean making two entrees. I would make one entree, and then I would have different options in terms of the sides. You know, I always had a starch because kids will do that. And then you can gradually start introducing new things to the basics, but just having choices. Um, Just to make it easy on yourself, always have a couple of frozen vegetables, frozen corn, frozen peas, which almost all kids like. And now Chris is going to say something completely different.
0: Yeah, I totally disagree. So how old is Henry?
2: He is 16 months.
0: Okay, well, I, I just spoke to an expert about kids learning flavors. And they said something really interesting. They said when they're very young, like uh, Henry's age, they are open to new flavors. The first time you give them something, they'll spit it out. If it's different, if you go back and keep giving it to them, they'll start eating it. So you need to persist a little bit. But 16 months is a good age. My two and a half, three-year-old is at the point where that isn't going to happen. They just get locked in. So early on, you can expose them to foods, but repeat it, And then when they get a little bit older, they're not. I have four older kids, and what I did was a little different than Sarah. When they got to the point where five, six years old, we only made dinner. We didn't have, you know, two dinners. And they could eat the dinner or not, and if they didn't, we had fruit. That was it. So, you know, you can have an apple, you can have a banana, you can have a pear. You don't have to worry about nutrition. Your kids are going to get plenty of nutrition. But I would not cook a second meal. I would just cook what you have. And, you know, and Sarah's right. Maybe they'll just eat the potatoes or the rice or they won't eat everything. But early on, you have an opportunity around one when they start eating solids, one to two. They're right in the sweet spot where if you keep at it, they might be able to even like slightly bitter things or sour things as well.
4: Yeah, I agree. Very good.
0: That's our combined wisdom about raising children.
4: Okay, Ashley. Take care. Thank you. Thank
0: you. That's so helpful. Thank you. This is Most jet Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
5: Hi, this is Julia. Instead of using the edge of your knife to scrape newly chopped items into a bowl, turn the knife 180 degrees and scrape it using the spine. That way you won't dull
0: your knife. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex iNews.
6: Alex, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, what have you been up to lately? So uh, lately I've been uh, attempting something quite fun, I must say, but also a bit daunting. I've been attempting to recreate the world's most famous mashed potatoes. You might be familiar with Joel Robuchon's mashed potato. For for the person out there who uh, don't know who Joel Robuchon is, Joel Robuchon is a French chef. He is the most Michelin star chef ever. He had 32 stars at, at the same time. He died in 2018, but he left a legacy. He was Eric Ripert's mentor. He was considered by Gordon Ramsay and by Thomas Keller to be an absolute master when it comes to cooking. He was
0: also, I have to interject, Jean Robuchon was also a nice guy. I mean, he, he didn't have a big ego. Yes. He, he just considered himself an ordinary cook, I believe.
6: Oh, he, he was lovely. And he's very known for his world-famous mashed potatoes, a creamy, very, very creamy, very luxurious French-style pomme purée. So, there is a video online on YouTube. That's how I learned all my cooking skills, basically. Uh, (laughs) That that sums up his method on how to do it. So, I watched it a few times. I knew I needed to start with cold water instead of boiling water, because it's a better way to come up with an even temperature in the end. I also knew something else, that you shouldn't be using a, a food processor to make... A right. potato mash. I don't know if you have done that before. Chris. Yes,
0: it's uh, it'll destroy it. It'll make them gluey and,
6: and nasty. Yeah, exactly. You're basically releasing all the starch when right. doing this. So it's making it gluey. So, so I knew that and I used a potato ricer. So I thought, well, this is going to be a very short subject for me. In fact, when I tasted the mash in the end, I thought, well, it's not bad. It's, it's fluffy mash like my mom would make. But but I was quite far away from from the texture I had seen on the YouTube video. You know, velvety and smooth. So I thought, well, it's gonna be an easy fix. Hmm. For my first experiment, I thought about adding more fat to it. We're talking about French cuisine, okay?
0: Yeah, but uh, adding more fat to mashed potatoes is a dicey proposition.
6: I thought, let's just do half and half. So I'm gonna go half potatoes and almost half butter. And in the end, I had an amazing texture, something extremely creamy, velvety, smooth. But I had a, created another problem. Problem is that it tasted like butter. Right. It did not taste like like, like, like potatoes no more. And can, 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 I, can I ask you a question, though? Yes. What do the French use? Do you use russet potatoes? I mean, what do you have as a, as a potato? Let's start with that. that. That is a very nice segue into my second experiment. I thought about exactly what you said, potato varieties. Right. I must have used the wrong one. So I'm a simple guy. <laughs> Alex, I'm you're a not a simple when it comes to food. at all. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But I made a mistake, I think, because at the grocery store, I bought what was advertised as potatoes for mash. Right. And in this case, usually what they call potatoes for mash are starchy potatoes. Right. So in France, our starchy potatoes are binger, for example, but yours would be russet, They are the recommended ones. Then I watched that uh, Joel Robuchon video one more time, and I noticed something. His potatoes were very, very small. And I found out that he was using rat potatoes. Now, these are heirloom fingerling potatoes, and it turns out that these potatoes have the lowest starch content ever he gave the reason why he uses rat potatoes. And he said, well, they are not made for mash. Absolutely not. It's not easy to work with these, but they taste the best. And I thought, wow. So he just took the best tasting potato and then find a way to make this work from a process point of view. And that's why also, if you were to watch that video where he makes his world famous mash, he whisked them very intensely and i thought this looks wrong on every level but in fact since they are so low in starch it makes sense so i give it a try i use some fingerlings rat potatoes i followed everything to the letter and then in the end i had the experience like honestly i never had mashed potatoes before something extremely creamy because of this new addition of the potato variety i could cut down a bit on butter so i went 30 percent butter instead of 50 50. this is <laughs> so- why wait a minute wait this is
0: why we love the french you you cut back on the butter from fifty percent to thirty yeah,
6: percent. exactly. I, I
0: just love but, that. But
6: but you're you're not supposed to eat to eat like a bowl full of, of mashed potatoes. It's just like a a little creamy, rich side that that will pair perf- perfectly with any meat or any vegetables.
0: No, 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 uh, no. Here in America, you, you don't have a little <laughs> tiny four tablespoons. You have a huge mound on the plate. I grew up with mashed potatoes and roast beef. I mean, that's, uh-huh. come on, it's, it's not, you know, this is not an appetizer.
6: Yeah, you're, 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 you're right. And, and, and in, in my defense, I would say that I did the same as a kid with my mom. But in this case, I would suggest right. at least to cut down on butter even more.
0: Did the Robichard recipe also use dairy, like cream or something as well?
6: I I mean, he used milk, obviously, to loosen the texture. So once uh, the potatoes are nicely mixed, you incorporate butter. And then to adjust the texture to your liking, you add milk. I see. Now, it comes down to something, I think, that is very personal in the end. Is that the best mash in the world? Well, maybe. As for many, the best mash I ever had is my mom's mash. That fluffy mash yeah. that holds itself together and stands proud in the plate. The right picture for the job is the one from, you know, the movie from uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, Encounter of the Third yeah, Type. Yeah, I think yeah Close called.
0: Encounters of the Third Kind, where he takes the mashed potatoes. The kid
6: does. Yeah. Ex- right. that that That's my go-to mash. That's the mash I remember. The one that, that gave me emotion as a kid. Now, I, I can't argue that uh, Joel Robuchon's mash was three Michelin star and, and, and very luxurious and, and Probably very expensive to to buy at his restaurant as well. But I guess at least it gave me a good understanding on how much the quality of the initial ingredient matter.
0: Well, you now are—I guess we could say—along with Eric Repair and some others, you're now a protege of Jean Robuchon. You did so uh, <laughs> off YouTube, but but nonetheless, uh, you now are one of Jean Robuchon's sous chefs. I would lo- I would love that. I would love that too, Alex. Uh, keep putting the butter in the mashed potatoes. Uh, that's so French. It's a good idea too. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye. That was YouTube host, Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Joël Robichon was the opposite of a celebrity chef. Yes, he accumulated 32 Michelin stars among his worldwide restaurants, which is still a record. And his first restaurant, Germain, received three Michelin stars in pretty short order. He was also named the best restaurant in the world by the International Herald Tribune. Yet Robichon viewed himself as a worker and not really a celebrity. He enjoyed a good rotisserie chicken. He loved simple food. He did not like dishes with more than three flavors. And his most famous dish was mashed potatoes. For Robuchon, cooking was always about the food and never about the fame. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
5: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street, in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinzaba, Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. An audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Bob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal-Eggloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.